You're listening to DubLab during our fall 2018 membership drive. Become a member of DubLab and support independent, bold, and innovative radio. Starting at just $5 a month, you can have access to exclusive ticket giveaways, merchandise by artists such as Sunara, Low Limit, Magdalena Suarez, and Brenna Murphy, as well as a unique care package curated by DubLab family and friends just for you. If DubLab has impacted you in any way, please consider becoming a member or donating today. For more information, please head over to www.dublab.com. Hello and welcome to In Conversation, a DubLab podcast where each week we will bring you interviews from the DubLab radio archives. Hi, this is Josh Kuhn um, here with DubLab.com and thrilled to be sitting across the radio board from one of the great legends of broadcasting and one of the great legends of L.A. music culture, uh, the great Art LeBeau. Hello, Josh. There it is. See, I can't even do the radio voice. Can you teach me how to do that? Uh, no. No, see, can't. Um, are, where, where are we? I mean, our listeners obviously can't see this incredible place that we're in right now. Well, we're almost on the corner of Sunset Boulevard, and La Brea Avenue, in, uh, actually in the heart of Hollywood. This is one of the main corners. And I've been in this uh, little funky studio here since uh, 1961. Uh, this used to be my office. Now it's the control room for the radio. And you can, you can identify it by the big original sound billboard. That looks pretty vintage. It is. The sign it's, it's, out it's, on the street. It's uh, 70s. Yeah. Um, and so you originally, this was just the office? This was not a recording studio when you first... Mm, no, the recording studio is, is uh, adjacent. Okay. And uh, when we enlarged the radio studio, we moved the wall, made my office a little smaller. This office it was, uh, it was put together in the 60s. We had a, an S-looking couch here and a full bar, and uh, it was quite a spot. Now, now what, what, what is the decision that, that has to happen that the full bar goes away? Uh, we have to go across the street. Oh, in okay. those days, right. there was a bar across the street. Did it make the shows different when you had a full bar in the office? No. Okay. Uh-uh. No, I never did the show from here in those days. Okay. The, the show has been done from this studio since 1995. Uh, prior to that, uh, I did shows at some of the radio stations. And at one time, from a, one of my bedrooms at home. Well, that, made, that made it easy. <laughs> a little bit. I didn't yeah. do the whole show from there. I was Just roll out of bed. somewhat convoluted since I'm an engineer. I started the show from my house and drove to the studio. Nice. Sometimes I just went to the studio. One of the things I think that's really special about um, this studio, uh, unlike other um, radio studios you might go to um, on FM radio, uh, is you actually don't see a lot of posters and photographs that are promotional from record labels and big superstars and corporate sponsorships all over. What you mostly see uh, are photographs from fans um, and letters uh, and incredibly, you know, walls covered with personalized messages to you. It's a very intimate space. Um, could you talk a little bit about how your show is as much about the musical experience as it is about 
this experience of a kind of intimacy with your fans? Well, I invite the fans to send the pictures in, you know, of themselves or with their pet, their cat or dog or their husband or their boyfriend or whatever, and they send them in, and then we usually send them a picture back. And uh, sometimes we get drawings. Uh, different people are pretty creative about it. They'll they'll send me posters from a, a show that they might be doing or album cover or those kind of things. It's just a sort of a, a potpourri of, uh, you know, listeners' material and, and uh, things that they identify with. And then as I look around as I'm doing the show, it, it also helps me because I feel like I'm looking around and I get the idea of who's out there. That's one thing about radio. You know, you're in a little studio somewhere with a microphone, and, uh, and that's all you have, and it's hard to connect it to, to realize you're talking to so many people when, when hopefully... Uh, each person, at least in, in my view, the way I approach it is uh, it's a one-on-one. Mm-hmm. So each person hopefully feels that you're talking to them. I mean, I got a call last night from a guy named Sam in Oxnard, and he said, I'm listening at work. So came time, a record ended, and I said, hey, Sam, Sam, the radio's talking to you. <laughs> and I can visualize him, you know, doing whatever work he does, which I don't know. And, and just the, you don't hear that, you know, and on the radio. And uh, and I, I could just see him <laughs> moving his head and say, what? <laughs> I mean, don't you think for so many of your fans, and you hear this a lot um, when people talk about you, and, and particularly in the contemporary moment, your value um, – as a broadcaster, as a DJ, as an on-air person, um, is that you make people feel uh, noticed, that you give individuals a sense that um, somebody's listening to them, that their names mean something to you and their stories are actually connecting with you. I mean, it's very rare these days when we can feel that kind of personal experience with this voice that maybe we've heard for 10 years, 20 years on the radio, that maybe a voice that meant something to our parents and to our brothers and sisters, um, that then says our name. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's hard for me to uh, identify with the other side, but I just try to make it easy for them. And that's that's the whole key, you know, is to get them to talk. I mean, as you say, I've been on here a long time. People have heard me a lot. So like any interview, you uh, what you're doing right now is getting the other guy to talk, and right. it's the same when I talk to a listener. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to see what they have to say, and it's hard to draw a listener out because they're not professionals, and uh, I try to tell them that they're not on the air. We always record our listeners first for obvious reasons, but they usually get back on the air within minutes, like 10 minutes, and I tell them that, and it puts them at ease because many people, when they call in, think they're going right on the air. They even have the radio turned up, and I have to tell them to turn it off so I can record it. I mean, I think if, if someone, you know, who hasn't listened to your show um, for the first time is listening to it, my guess is that what they're going to notice that separates it from any other show currently on the air, but certainly maybe in any other show ever, is not just what kind of music you're playing, and we'll, maybe we'll, you know, we'll come back to that in a second, but what happens in between the songs, the dedications, um, that comfort level where people are, are, are um, working so hard to get on the air to dedicate their songs to someone. And it's, it's not just random dedications. These are very personal dedications um, to 
loved ones, to family members, to people who are in prison, to people you, who, who have passed. Um, and so there, if you could talk a little bit about maybe the history of the shout out and the dedication on your show, when did you start having that be part of you your know shows? What? I did, I did uh, dedications on the, my first radio program, which was in 1943 at KSAN in San Francisco. Uh, that was my first commercial station. I was in the Navy. I was uh, assigned to Treasure Island outside of San Francisco. And, of course, I still had the, had the radio bug since I was eight. And I was now just turned 18. And uh, I got a gig doing a, a little bit of a, a board as a board op. And uh, I think I, I may have told this story before. I've told it a few times, but I'll tell you how I got my first job because people ask me that a lot. You know, how'd you get started? And that's the first question at parties or interviews. And it is kind of unique because uh, just before I went in the Navy, I was going to Stanford studying radio engineering. So when I went to KSAN, I had this little squeaky voice and uh, I was even smaller than I am now. I was about five foot three and I weighed 105 pounds. I walked into KSAN uh, pretty brazenly and asked the secretary if I could see the general manager. In those days, it wasn't quite as hard to get in as it is now. She didn't know what I wanted. She just said, yeah, down the hall, second door, and his name is Mr. Akers. So I w walked down there and I my little voice said, uh, Mr. Akers, uh, you know, I, I, I'm here uh, to kind of look for a job. And as uh, and he looked up, he was a big man, and he looked up over his glasses and says, who are you, what do you want, and how'd you get in here? <laughs> so he fried me down to about two inches tall, and I said, well, well I, you know, I thought I might be able to do some radio work, be on the air here, you know. No, he says, he says, you don't have the voice for it. You're too young. Uh, and uh, he says, we don't have anything for you. He says, uh, sorry, he said. I said, oh, well, okay. And uh, I started to walk out the door, and he says, besides, he says, you have to have an FCC license, a third-class radio telephone. We use combination people here. So I says, I turned around and walked over, and I said, you mean one of these? And I pulled out a first-class radio telephone, a telegraph license, and a radio ham license. And with those licenses, I could operate any kind of radio station anywhere in the world. But he looked at that first-class telephone. He said, you're hired. And I said, but, but, but I thought you, I, he says, no, you're hired, son. He comes over around, then he puts his arm around me, and he says, he says, you see that license there? He says, all my engineers have been drafted. I should have said earlier, this is during World War II. He said, all my engineers have been drafted, and I'm operating illegally. And if I hire you, I'm legal. And that's how I got my first job. Nice. <laughs> so you never know, you know, what what how you get started right. and then i had a little bit of airtime you know i used to come in do the station ids and then near at the end of the sh of the schedule which was midnight 11 to 12 no one wanted to buy so they we would play records there were no such thing as djs yet it was just you were an announcer and you played records and so what, i had that hour and like what kind of songs were you playing what kind of music i was playing uh at that time uh Big bands, uh, still playing Glenn Miller and Artie Shaw and and uh, Duke Ellington and uh, even Billie Holiday and all kinds of things like that. You know. And in between those songs, you started to do. I'd talk, yeah, a little bit. And scared, would you, would you do dedications? Death, but, huh? And you started to well, do dedications. Well, yes, I thought I'd I'd uh, try it, 
And uh, so I invited people to write in, and uh, they did. I'd get a few letters, like half a dozen, you know. And now around here, sometimes we get 100 a day. But uh, I've got these letters, and I, it was exciting, and I'd read them on the air. This is for so-and-so and so-and-so. How would you say that the content of the dedications have changed since Not then? a lot. You'd be no? surprised. They were still mostly in those days, and they were young girls, and there still are. <laughs> calling in, and a lot of other people, too. But uh, the, the teenagers of today, you know, and we're in 2012 here, um, are, are, are different in the sense that they have a lot of other things to do besides listen to the radio. In 1943, there were only two things. There was movies and radio. There was nothing else. There was no cell phones and there was no games, video games, or nothing else. That's it. So radio became the thing. And, uh, of course, this was a small station, and uh, it did not play a lot of music. It was not uh, a music station. And the only music stations I recall in those days that were total music stations were classical. There were a couple of classical stations in the big cities. But otherwise, uh, the only time you'd hear music on the radio is when they didn't have the time sold or it was a time like I said at 11 o'clock where there was a time to fill mm -hmm. so the announcer on duty would uh, play some records there were only three record companies uh, RCA, Columbia and and, uh, and, the, and what they called Decca Records then which was now Universal <laughs> as, as usual Josh I'm giving you a long answer <laughs> to a short, short question but all good important stories <laughs> um, so wh when did you first come down to LA? Well, you first made it to actually out to the desert, right? To Palm Springs it was first before Los Angeles. No, I uh, I went from KSAN. <clears throat> I had to finish the war, so I, I was a radio uh, operator on Pan Am Clippers, which the Navy had taken over. That's what I did. I went to Hawaii 147 times. I counted them all, and I had 250,000 logged hours in two and a half years uh, working for Pan Am. So L.A.'s my home, and after the war, I came home to okay. L.A. and uh, couldn't get a job, and all the big time. It was still only radio. There was still no television. It was 1946. Mm -hmm. So it was still just movies and, and, uh, and radio. So I went around to the radio stations and couldn't get in the door because all the big time announcers and uh, people that were in the war were coming back. They knew everybody, and and I uh, couldn't get started. I finally got a job uh, doing an all-night show here in L.A. On which station was that? KRKD. KRKD. The towers are still there downtown Los Angeles at, uh, I think it's Fifth and Spring, mm -hmm. and uh, they, in the Spring Arcade Building. So KRKD, RKD, is, you know, phonetically supposed to spell arcade. Okay. And those collars are still up there, and, and it's a, a historical monument. And, and what kind of songs were you playing then? Well, at that time, then, music had, had uh, changed a little. Uh, some more of the pop artists of the day were, were there. Um, even, I think, Sinatra had already started. We played Joe Stafford. We played uh, Patti Page. We played people like that. I was in the uh, late 40s. We started to play some things. Uh, there were some R&B records around then. Louis Jordan and his Timpani Five and a few pe pe people like that. Mm -hmm. And that Slim must have been... Gaylord was there. I remember him. I met him later 
and, and other people a, a mixture of music. There was no real um, popular music you could call pop music, you know. I and mean, we were still playing the big bands all over the place. I mean, we were still playing Glenn Miller, and even though he died during the war, uh, we still had Tommy Dorsey and some new bands, Jerry Gray, a few others. So there was a lot of just pop music, popular music, and still the bands that had the horns and the vocalists that sat there and got up and sang, and we were playing those people. I mean, that late 40s, early 50s period in L.A. music was, as you well know, I mean, one of the richest, most incredible times for black music in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. The Central Avenue scene was, was thriving. Um, to what extent did that kind of overlap with your world um, on the radio? Well, I, I was I was in L.A. in 1946, um, and then I went to a, a station in Pomona uh, where I could be more on the air. I wanted to be on the air more instead of being on overnight. And then and then uh, I went to uh, I went to Palm Springs in 1947 and got a job at K, uh, KCMJ which is still there, and it was the only station in Palm Springs, so uh, people could, if they couldn't hear anything else, because the L.A. stations still can't get into Palm Springs, only the Palm Springs stations, and now there's probably 15 stations there, maybe more. I'm on one of them, <laughs> K-Dez. Is, uh, there, is, is there a radio show. station in the United States you're not on? <laughs> well, I'm on iHeartRadio, so that goes all <laughs> over the country now. It's clear channels. Uh, I, it's gaining a lot of steam now. We could try to play a game at home where we invite listeners to try to not listen to Art LeBeau on the radio. Oh, try to not great. find yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, one of my salespeople when I was a, at, uh, doing this syndicated show, and I was on, uh, still I believe I'm on these same stations. Uh, well, I was on an L.A. station, not the same one I'm on now, 92.3, but um, I was on... Um, I think it was on KRLA in L.A. then. And then I was on in uh, Palm Springs on KDES, and I was on 99.1 KGGI. And one of the salesmen had his girlfriend. They were going to Palm Springs, and they had my show on. And she said, um, I, can I turn the set the dial somewhere else, or can I get to a different station, maybe hear something else? And he says, yeah, go ahead. So she turns, and Art LeBeau comes out of the next button. And then she twists the dial, and Art LeBeau comes out again. She says, this is the funniest radio. She said, it only gets Art LeBeau. <laughs> but they happened to be just in that little triangle, my radio Bermuda Triangle, which is where the Palm Springs station came in with what we call a city-grade signal. And then L.A. still comes in strong until you go around the mountain. And 99.1 is in Riverside, so they were all strong, you know. So as she went across the dial, her, her seeker just hit those, I guess. I don't know. I'm not sure whether she was turning or pushing buttons. I think it'd be a good experiment. We could, it'd be a really interesting kind of sound art project to try to see how long you can like, drive across the Southwest oh. without well, hearing Art LeBeau. This, you Constant hear, Art LeBeau. Sometimes uh, at the present day, you can hear f- four stations that I know of because San Diego comes in. So if you get down around Orange County... You're, you're going to be able to hear at least four. Do you ever feel bad for your competitors who just can't get on the air and you just dominate I don't and dominate? I bad for competitors. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> you know, I don't mean to be braggadocious, but I do have to tell you this story because I was real <laughs> proud of it at the time. I don't mean to brag, but I don't mean I'm going to brag, brag. But I'm going to yeah, brag. Go well, this is something to brag about. Uh, the ratings in, in, in Los Angeles in the 90s when I started, call it my radio comeback, because I hadn't really done a full-fledged radio show in L.A. since 1980. Okay. Um, but I was doing a little taped show with uh, Doo-Wop, the Doo-Wop shop for KRLA because they asked me to. So I was continuously on, but um, not in the front lines. And um, KGGI uh, was where I started the present show 21 years ago. And the show just broke loose. It went crazy. And one of the ratings came out was Arbitron and I had a 49 share and my show was number one and all the other stations together in that area were number two and you, in Riverside you can hear about 20, 25 stations and that was something I kept that, I have it somewhere <laughs> now when I was barely number one but I was Oh, that's a good thing. To just, Everybody that's else a good motto. all together, and even the L.A. stations get into Riverside. I was quite excited about that. Art, you will always be number one to me. Well, thank <laughs> you. It's a hard struggle. I know. I know that means a lot to you. But with the people meter, it's a little harder because um, when they had the diaries out there, they had 7,000 diaries in L.A. People meter has 2,000 now, hmm. and everything is sampled, so it's possible to get big ratings on a certain time of day and certain demo. But certainly the internet has changed. I mean, it's changed everything in radio, but it's also changed the way you do radio. I mean, you're online, you use, you're very active on social media. I mean, the internet's become part of your show. People can send dedications through Facebook, on Twitter, all kinds of other other avenues, right? Yeah, and especially now, uh, since I'm on the Clear Channel station in Los Angeles, uh, is my flagship station. And uh, it's, it uh, is on iHeartRadio, so I have a link from artlebeau.com to iHeartRadio. And they get, I'm getting people from every, <clears throat> everywhere. It's just amazing. You know, I get people from Texas. I had a girl from Texas, uh, uh, Houston, and I said, she says, I listen to you all the time. And I said, well, you're in Houston, Texas. There must be 30 stations there. Why, is it, why do you listen to me? I said, you know, why this show? She says, because there's nothing like this at all in in, in Houston. And I said, like what? Why? What makes it different? I wanted to know. I wanted her viewpoint. And she said, well, there's nobody that that lets you talk on the air, talks to you, and does your really does your dedications and plays what you want most of the time. Mm-hmm. And you put people on from everywhere. There's, nobody does that. And I thought, well, somebody must do it somewhere, but they don't do that. They don't put the people on. Right. I put all kinds of people on. I put a grandmother on. I'll put a 10-year-old. I had a 1-year-old once just saying, G-g-g-g-g-goo. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a record. Yeah. Now, I we- had a good slogan I was going to use, but I don't use it. From Art LeBeau, you listen to Art LeBeau from womb to tomb. <laughs> <laughs> There's something to that, Art. I would copyright that real quick. Real quick. It's, I, I never said it on the air except now. That's Maybe true. we'll run it with this story. I, I still from old school. I used, they used to get on us when we said hell or damn. I mean, you could be fired, admonished from radio forever. So when you, when you were starting, let's go back to the L.A. kind of um, in the early 50s. 
moment uh, in the 1950s in Los Angeles. Um, and the big band and pop songs kind that... Of, you could hear a little of everything on the radio. Right. You're talking about mid-50s now. I wanted, and, and I want, but I wanted to talk specifically about the transition from big band and pop, as you were talking about it, to what became known as rock and roll, um, which, of course, was originally R&B uh, in some ways. And there's a whole longer conversation about the politics of race and how R&B became rock and all that that you were very much a part of. Yeah. Little Richard says it the best. He says... Uh, Rhythm and Blues had a baby, and they named it Rock and Roll. And you were active in in playing some of the first rock records in Los Angeles on the West Coast. Because I was playing Rhythm and Blues uh, in the early 50s, in 51, 52. You know, everybody says, when did rock and roll start? I believe it started in late 1955, when uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis and all those people Mm -hmm. came on the scene. But the rhythm and blues, and who later became some of these artists that became what you call rock and roll artists, like uh, Big Joe Turner and Ruth Brown and all the R&B artists became rock and roll artists, mostly on Atlantic Records. And they made the transition just very easily. But the transition between pop music, the big bands and the vocalists, the Sinatras and... and, uh, some of the other vocalists of the day, was slow. The Billboard charts, if you look at them in 1954 and 55 and 56, there's no, there's a big mishmash of, of top artists there. There's, there's, and so little by little, the pop artists, the big bands, fell off the charts and then rock and roll became pre- predominant with Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and Gene Pitney and others. But you kept playing the black R&B artists as well, of course. Yes, uh, yeah, I did. And, 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 and broke a lot of those records on my drive-in show. Like, for example? Um, well, a song like, uh, uh, like uh, Shake, Rattle, and Roll, Big Joe Turner, uh, Corrine Corina, things like that, uh, were made for rock and roll. You know, even though Shake, Rattle, and Roll was... a traditional old uh, R&B song, it was done differently. You know, they took it, did it in a bigger and better studio and more bands and legendary artists. People like Fats Domino emerged, a whole bunch of artists out of New Orleans. So when you were playing these songs in the 1950s in Los Angeles and you were playing um, R&B by predominantly African-American artists, and you were playing music that was now being called rock and roll, in many cases, by white artists. Um, were you thinking at that time, when was race like part of the way you thought about music? And did you think about it in terms of your fans? Did you know who was listening to you? Did it matter to you? Well, I knew uh, because I was doing a show at a drive-in restaurant uh, at late at night, Scrivener's in L.A., and it was a late-night show from midnight to four or five, four in the morning. And uh, I would walk around, talk to people in their cars. So there'd be a lot of kids, especially on weekends. And they would tell me what, what I should play. I'd say, well, how do you know, have you, have you, have you heard uh, this or have you heard that? And I'd say, no, well, I've got it, I'll bring it to you. And they'd bring it and I had a turntable there where I could, I could play it. And they'd get a, a big reaction. Then I'd start playing it uh, more, just playing it on the air. Right. But uh, the the R and B artists, um, sorry, are, but like at the at Scribner's, were those kids? Was it mostly white kids? Was it yeah, white and black kids? Mostly white mostly kids. White, 
And uh, later, when I did another show for Scriveners, in night, when it got to be 1956, that all-night show was in the early 50s, 51, 52, 53. I was there for f almost five years. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and in the meantime, I had been to Palm Springs and and uh, and Reno, and then I came back to L.A. and decided I'd try this all-night show in the afternoon. So I went back to Scrivener's, and he liked the idea. So we came on the air at 3 o'clock in the afternoon in L.A. in the summer, late summer of 55. And, of course, the show just skyrocketed then because rock and roll was just at the crest of the wave and like a surfer that catches the wave. There I was, sitting right on top of it. And I had a lot of knowledge that I'd gained uh, over the years that I'd been doing the all-night show, and I started playing that music that I knew the kids liked. And the only other one that was playing such kind of music was Hunter Hancock. And Hunter Hancock only played black artists. He would not play any white artists. And the white artists actually emulated the black artists in rock and roll in the beginning. That's where they they got their ideas and style, even though they added their own. Even Elvis, I mean, it's well-known, anybody knows the history of Elvis, that he used to go to the black side of town and jam with some of the guys there that used to just sit in their front porch and play the guitar, and, and uh, another guy would bang on a bucket and that kind of thing, and Elvis would go there. And so he was highly influenced by... Uh, the early rhythm and blues that's mm -hmm. all over the place i mean one of the things you know in looking back on that period in particularly la music history is one way i think you could look at los angeles in those days is that in the 1950s was still very much a kind of racially segregated city in terms of populations and where they lived in the city and right. yet the music scene the more the I think at least I found that the, the the deeper you dig into the history of music in LA, particularly in that period, you see that all of that um, segregation actually got crossed and mixed through music. Um, and pot, and I, I remember there's a, that great photo. And granted, this is not LA proper, but there's that great El Monte Legion Stadium photograph of you broadcasting with this this sea of teenagers behind you. Uh, and it's a sea of teenagers who are black and brown and white, and it's a complete mixed scene that from late late fi or mid fifties, right? Yeah, mid fifties, and, and on into fifty six, fifty seven, fifty eight, fifty nine. So was that your sense? Was that music was crossing lines yeah, in Los I think Angeles, it was bringing that people together because the young people didn't didn't have uh, any any prejudices. I didn't notice any, especially when it came to music. Mm -hmm. They all liked the same thing. And uh, and you're right about them being segregated because uh, uh, most of the people even today are uh, black people in the south part of Los Angeles. The Latinos mostly in the eastern part of Los Angeles and out into the valley. And all the white kids came from Westwood or, you know, West L.A. or even Hollywood. I mean, if you go to Hollywood High today, you see a big mixture of people. Mm -hmm. But in... 1955, uh, they're all blonde and blue-eyed almost. And so, so the music that you played started to become kind of like the foundation, at least, for... You know, at the drive-in, uh, I've shown you some pictures of those where I'm there with Ricky Nelson. Uh, in that case there, they were. it depended on who I had as a guest that day. When I had Ricky Nelson, I had mostly white teenage girls. I'd have uh, the Crickets or somebody like uh, Jackie Wilson or 
even Chuck Berry or Bo Diddley, then I'd have a big mixture of people. Right. Right. Well, that's the way that went. But you got to remember, one of the advantages I had was um, the fact that I was there. I was outside right with everybody, right with the kids every day. So it was like a built-in research. Nowadays, they put them in an auditorium, and they're all hand-picked, and they say, well, you like this song, you like that song, you like that song. But some of that instinct, I guess you'd call it, for what's, what's right to play that will cross over. You know, it's like the old saying, you know, what's the best kind of music? What's your formula? And I said, the big formula is three things, you know, crossover, crossover, crossover. Play the music that crosses all the lines if you can. It's harder now. But also in that photo that I was mentioning, it's almost if you're, if you're not careful, you'll miss you in the picture. You blend in with the audience. And I think that this is something that what, we, what you just said goes back throughout your whole career is that you've never approached radio. You've never approached um, being a DJ, playing songs for people as something that you're up, up on a pedestal or up on high or somehow separate from your audience, but that you need to be with your audience and they need to be part of you in order for you to serve them in the way that you know how to do. Well, that happened, uh, you know, mostly because of that drive-in experience, you know, where I was there for many years. I mean, the all-night show for four years and the afternoon show for three, at least, maybe more. I can't remember exactly, but so I had about seven to eight years being with an audience. So when I go in the studio, I still have that inner feeling that I'm there and they're, they're there and especially only even though we're doing it on the phone uh, it's still there it's not as not quite and whenever I do go out in the audience uh, at concerts like uh, I had a five minute stage wait uh, just last month and uh, we had some track artists where they bring their tracks and then the band has to set up and so I then I want to try something I had a disc jockey there from Palm Springs, I said, you take uh, the mic out in the audience and find some people, and I'll talk to them from the stage and let them talk back. And uh, it was one of the first times we'd done that, and it really went over big. I mean, people were applauding and laughing, and, and we were just finding just, uh, uh, you know, who's that next to you, you know? And, and then the guy got in the audience. It was a, a big crowd, I think 5,000 or so, and he was down in front, and I says, uh, you know, Victor, go on towards the back there and get some other people. So he disappeared into the crowd, and I said, where are you? And he says, I'm here. <laughs> and I'm looking at 5,000 people, and I said, well, I don't know where that is, and everybody laughs, you know. And so we were doing it there at the concert, which is, you know, last month, right. June 2012. Right. <laughs> but I have to say, I, I saw some photos from what, maybe this is the same concert or a different one of a Latin freestyle show where I think part of the other reason why you connect with your fans and are so easily noticed by your fans are the outfits you oh. wear, Art LeBeau. Um, there were some incredible outfit changes going on. Yeah. I you saw were, a little Gold LeMay number. The freestyle Explosion concert, were you? No, that's, I think I saw, those, I saw a little Gold number. That was, that was well, quite something. Now I have a whole bunch of different ones. We had a concert where we had Lisa Lisa and we yeah. had... Uh, uh, um, Debbie Deb, Debbie Deb, and uh, Stevie B. Mm-hmm. This is one of the first ones that I've done, which brought the music into the '80s, and we didn't know how that would work. But uh, the, I, I do play those artists, but not heavily. And uh, we just had a 
monstrous crowd, and they loved it, you know, because well, people think upbeat. of you as a voice, but they don't think of you as a style icon. I guess not. And I think it's time. I guess not. I because think we need to see your clothes. We need to see your. We need to get inside the Art LeBeau wardrobe. When I get down with with people, I mean, they really just feel like they know me, you know. And I, if if I ever get down in the crowd, and and often I sometimes I do. So let me ask you about that. I guess, genre term that you are, that you are most um, affiliated with, of course, which is oldies but goodies, um, which I'm actually sitting on the board that I'm sitting at here. I'm looking at a, uh, a series of cues under the heading oldies but goodies, and among the things I see uh, are some, looks like an ad for Viagra, some proactive, uh, inner thrive, uh, and ageless male. So I'm wondering, is there a connection, Art LeBeau, between um, oldies but goodies and um, ageless masculinities uh, I and that. inner thriving? I, I, I would say there is. I mean, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, t- today uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, advertising that you hear on the radio that you probably wouldn't hear ordinarily, but businesses isn't what it used to be in advertising. And well, I think you must be taking ageless male because you look <laughs> pretty good, my friend. That's called testosterone. Yeah, I'm helps. telling you. I think, I think this is all the way for you to get all these pills and just live to be <laughs> no, 120. Actually, never, you don't use those pills. I use the, the real ones. <laughs> We're going to get to Art LeBeau's health regimen in a second. Um, but what, for you, what, what makes an oldie but goodie? How would Song you? De- yeah, how how would you define it? It defines itself. It's old, but it's got to be good. And that was how that all started because it started at the drive-in again, in in early, 19, in about the middle of 1956. I used to pass out a list, and then I'd let the let them pick songs from the list, and I'd call them in, and the station would cue them up and and play them. And then while that song was playing, we'd I'd go to the next car and. And have a car and have a one-way conversation to the board op at the station, and he had all the songs, and we had about twenty or thirty of the top hits. And uh, people start asking for songs that were older, like three or four years old. The teenagers would ask for uh, a high school senior would ask for a song like Earth Angel that was popular when they were junior high school, and uh, and so play me one of those old songs, you know. And I said, like what? And say. Pledging My Love or Earth Angel, I'd say, well, that's not very old. And yeah, it is. I was in junior high then. You know, I just barely was in junior high. Now I'm, you know, I've got a job. I'm out of a graduate or I'm in college. So, you know, so, so it had to be old, but it had to be good. If it was old, it's okay. If it was just plain old, it was no good. It had to be good. So it's an oldie, but it's good. But like you got, there's a, if you listen to your show over and over again, there's going to be a kind of, uh, at least a handful of standards that, that you'll probably hear over a few weeks, over a month, right? The repeat that are popular, that are oldies but goodies in that sense. Some of them, 20 years, you Absolutely. hear the same one. Like but you range, mentioned one earlier, Rosie, you know, or, yeah. I mean, Angel Baby. Always and forever. They still ask for Doesn't that. Doesn't go away. Yeah, they still yeah. ask for them. And, and I think, well, you know, may, might make the show kind of dull because it's the same music every night, you know. So I try to slip in some other stuff here and there. But about... 80 to 90 percent of the music still played is comes directly from those that call in. But it's not just that um, it's not only that your audience who is aging with you um, is choosing oldies but goodies songs that meant something to them when they were younger. But it's also younger people who are requesting these older songs. 
Yeah. I think that's really important and really interesting about your show uh, are 20 year olds who want to hear a song that was popular in 1965 or in 1970 or Arbitron now uh, in their rating service starts at 6 6 to 11 and then uh, uh, 12 to 17 and then mm-hmm. uh, and they just started this category of 6 to 11 so I started to uh, catering to the younger kids you don't hear young people on the air so i thought well i'll try it you know i was invited i don't care what age you are just call in so i found that the parents would be right there coaching a five-year-old because they wanted to hear their kid on the radio i remember well, my parent might be carrying a people meter you know <laughs> and and they would be categorized somewhere else so you have anyway. a five-year-old requesting always and forever and you know that there's a parent behind them yeah i like the it actually happened just a few nights ago i had a, a girl call in and uh, he said um uh my grandma wants to hear justin bieber and i yeah, said nice i said <laughs> i said are you sure that it's your grandma that wants to hear Justin Bieber? And she goes, well, uh, uh, uh. I said, how old are you? She says, I'm nine. And I says, okay, I'm going to play Justin Bieber for your grandma, right? I won't tell. Here it is. <laughs> so you, you, you don't only, of course, play oldies but goodies, but you've, um, uh, for, for many, many, many years now, been marketing that term uh, and putting out records under the heading of Oldies But Goodies through your own record label, Original Sound. Um, where did that, I and mean, these were, if I'm not mistaken, these were the, fr- this was the first time that it was a kind of collection of hits. Um, of a Old hits on... On one record, yeah. right? You basically invented that format. Well, yeah, and the first one that came up with the concept. And what year was this? This was... Uh, it would be... Uh Right about 1959. 59. And this began with the Oldies But Goodies compilations. Mm -hmm. Volume 1 came out, I believe, in October of 59. And that series is still ongoing in some ways, yes. It's still ongoing, although the record sales uh, are not what they used to be. And I'm not in the record business anymore, but I, I still own Oldies But Goodies. Time Life used it recently and paid us a nice royalty per package. And how long was Original Sound um, as a label active? Uh, uh, from, ni- from 1959 until uh, actively probably uh, 2006 oh, or seven. It's a long run. Yeah, we, we still have people that want to try to buy some things. Most of the licenses we have for our vinyl are still good. They were written in such a way that I ticked out some of them myself and they're perpetual you know I didn't know they were at the time but as we moved on and some of our contracts started to get to be six eight ten pages and I talked to one of our really good music lawyers and I said you know I've got this earth angel contract that is only one paragraph long and he looked at it and he says and I said I've got other ones since then that we're using with same guy that owns Earth Angel, and I said, maybe we should redo that contract so it'd be a little tighter. He says, your one paragraph's pretty tight. He says, I give you the right to use this song for one cent per album, and uh, you will pay me the royalties every six months, period. That's all it says. He says, I would have a hard time attacking that. It, it says what you'll do, what he'll do, and doesn't say how long it'll run, so can he doesn't say he has the right to 
stop it. So the fact is that we continued using that all the way in to the end there wow. on that particular contract. All right, I, I have a 45 at home. Um, the song is called the song is called Mexican Midnight. <laughs> and it's billed to a band called Art LeBeau and his group. Yeah. What happened was I, I, I came up with this. I, I, I did not write the song. Uh, a guy just sent it to me. Uh, sent me a tape from back east. A white guy, by the way. And I mean, not a Latino. He was pure white from the Midwest. And he banged it out on the piano. And I thought, you know, I needed a B-side. And we, we're in the studio with Ernie Freeman, I think, and some people. And we found these guys, the Candoli brothers, that can play triple tongue trumpets together Pete, Pete a duet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Pete and another one, uh, and his brother. I can't remember his brother's Poor name. Poor guy. Everyone remembers Pete. Yeah, and they were great. Yeah. And uh, so I, I, they, they, we did this Mexican Midnight with studio musicians. They were there to, to record somebody else. So, so what name should we put on? I said, well, I think I'll just stick my name on it. That way we won't have any trouble with anybody. <laughs> so they were all paid their union skit. It was a union session. And uh, it was never a hit. It came out, I believe, in the right in the middle of the Beatles era, and uh, I was not real active in radio then. It's uh, not a hit yet. We're going to play it on Dub Lab, and you uh, watch well, what happens. It just might be because it's it's really good. I yeah. think. Have um, you heard it? I have, of course, I've heard it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's not bad, huh? No, I think, and I think maybe some of the DJs will want to sample it. I think the other side of it is called Pickwick, Pickwick. Twist. Yeah, and Pickwick the twist. twist was big then in 1965. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you listen to it, I mean, it's what an arrangement, you know, the way they, those horns overlap and every, especially on Pickwick Twist. Now, you, you, in talking about that song, you went out of your way to um, specify that the guy who wrote it was white and not Latino, not Mexican. And that, of course, brings up one of the really interesting and important things about your career, especially in the contemporary moment, um, is just how popular you are with Mexican-American audiences um, throughout Southwest, but especially in Los Angeles and Southern California. Um, for you, I mean, how did that come about? Did you, is there a moment when you started noticing that your demographics were changing? Um, and for you now, how, how important is it for you? I mean, you're, you really are kind of honorary voice of Mexican America. Um, and this, this has got to be a really rewarding, uh, and also kind of powerful, uh, thing for you. I don't know about the powerful, but Powerful emotional rewarding, certainly, and, yeah. and, and uh, they come to my concerts in droves, and and uh, sometimes there'll be uh, as many as three generations that that come to that, and that all started, you know, in the fifties when uh, we couldn't have dances in Los Angeles uh, if you were under the age of under the age of eighteen. You could go to a concert, but you couldn't have a public dance unless it was sanctioned by the Board of Education. That was a city ordinance. So we had to go other places to do dances because in those days, kids wanted to dance. They wanted a dance and a show. So we'd do three or four artists, and then we'd say, uh, and then we'd say, or we'd play dance music, and then we'd say, okay, it's showtime, just like we do in the old nightclubs. Right. And then sometimes people would gather around, and, 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 and if they were listening to Big Joe Turner, for instance, the first right in the bandstand, and El Monte, they weren't sitting down. They were standing. It was like a big dance ballroom. 
and uh, just the floor. And so the first few rows would be uh, listening, standing up there. But beyond that, the bulk of the audience was dancing to the music. It was all very danceable, all, almost all that 50s music. And if it wasn't a uh, regular danceable 4-4 uh, rock and roll beat, uh, we'd play a ballad, and then they'd do the standstill dancing, you know, <laughs> stand, standing in one spot and just moving their feet for the, the ballads. Mm -hmm. And they liked that, too, you know. And so for, from, even from that moment, um, Mexican-American listenership has been a central part uh, yeah, that started there where they were, you know, 15 and 16. Right. But an interesting phenomenon has taken place in the last uh, year, let's say, <clears throat> that the really, really young kids, I'm not talking about teenagers now, 17 and 18 and 19, but a little bit younger than that, seem to be searching for their own music, just like the teenagers of the 50s wanted rock and roll and wanted to throw out the old bands. These really young kids are like the music of the 50s for some reason, especially the novelties. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the kids that are, say, from seven, six to seven to about 11, or maybe even a little older, up to 12, down to maybe first graders, they seem to like 50s music. Like when Christmas comes, I started with the chipmunks or other things that we have uh, that were... Um, uh, like um, Land of a Thousand Dances, they'll like that. Or they'll like some novelties, anything that's, that's novel, and especially if it's true, straight-up rock and roll. Hmm. Like, I don't play a lot of Little Richard, but uh, that's what they like. And it, seems, it looks like it might be a force coming, because they, I have heard through other kids that they're liking to wear the 50s jackets and jackets and um. hairstyles and things. They're kind of reverting back. Like, I remember in the 70s, uh, a lot of people, the girls, were liking the dresses and stuff of the 40s. They liked from stuff from old movies, especially around here. It's interesting that I'm not sure that it's a, it, that it's a growing phenomenon, but it I'm getting enough of it since I let the, the little ones on the air that they seem to like the 50s music more so than they like the contemporary. But I, I, I don't also think they, I think because it's easy to understand, they don't have to think about it. You know, sure. it's just right there. It says it, it says what it is. Right. You know, and, and 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 some of it's nonsensical. Like once in a while, I play a song like Sea Cruise. You know. Mm. I got to get to rock and get my hat off the rack. I got to get to rock and like a knife in the back. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't say anything. And because it's so nonsensical, the kids say, yeah, that's pretty good. But I also think that, you know, when you look at the history of American popular music, um, you know, at least from the start of the 20th century, um, you know, people always talk about that early period of standards, of Tin Pan Alley standards, of a kind of the, you know, the repertoire of the American songbook. And what's really fascinating in hearing you talk and in thinking about um, the way that so, the so-called oldies never go away and are being requested by younger and younger people is in a way you've created your own set of standards. You've created, at least for Mexican-Americans, for African-Americans in Los Angeles, in California, in the Southwest of the United States, you've created a whole new repertoire of a tradition where, yes, it's about 
dressing 50s, but it's also about keying into a tradition that connects you to your, your parents or even to your grandparents or to your community in your, your block, in your city, right? Um, I mean, I think there's something yeah, there I, that, you know, that it's so early in the game on it. I can't tell whether it's it's you know, guys any any real traction or not, but it's it's definitely there. But I don't know how much traction it has yet, because I'm the only one doing it. So right. you know, I don't nobody else is. I don't think anybody on on traditional radio, terrestrial radio, is playing music out of the '50s at all. Right. Uh, which is good, extra not, good. Does not get them a lot of that ratings. You're on the air know. so much, <laughs> so there's multiple Art LeBeaus. Well, you know, it still works. I mean, I'm I'm with a very large radio organization, yeah. Clear Channel, and and I'm on whether one of their, if not the major market, this in New York, and yet you know I have full autonomy on my show, and uh, you know that's very uh, that's really something. Yeah, I think it's it's uh, it says hey. The, radio station like Hot 92, its present monetary value is probably a half a billion dollars. And for them to hand it to me for 31 hours a week and say, go ahead, be Art LeBeau, well, you can bet that every, every month they're looking at the people meter, too. But they're, they're very... Uh, you know they're very good people with me anyway, and I, I think you know basically, they they realize what the people meter is, and I'm not going to be number one all the time, but you know, uh, last month's ratings just came out and they were excellent. It was way up in the top five, and in the English dominant. Twenty-five fifty-four is the money demo. I'm either number one or number two mm-hmm. in there. Power and Power One Hundred Six and 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 me and Kiss it's right amazing. there. Amazing. So you know they're there. They, they there's a broad audience uh, that just to expand a little on the young kids, the really young ones. I think when I first started this about a year ago. I think the ratings came out, and I had a 76 share on the people meter with kids 6 to 11. Now, a good share and a good rating in Los Angeles is a 4 share, 5 share. You can be number one with a 6 or a 7 share. But, I mean, it, was, it turned upside down. I don't know how many people meters, but there's nobody playing to the kids. So right. I suppose, you know, wherever they were sampling, I uh, must have had most of them. And and it was amazing to me that they printed it. And it happened for about three or four months in a row. It was either a 60 share or a 76. Amazing. Topped out at a, meant 76% of kids that age were listening to this. And uh, even the Disney Channel, which, you know, has miserable ratings, uh, has no kids that I can see. I mean, and they don't get them. They don't know. So who knew the trick to getting kids to listen to the radio is like play them their their great grandparents' music? Yeah, and then you get the great grandparents listening too. That's right. So and, Art, I want to promote I, it that way. I don't know how they promote it. To be honest with you, I don't listen to it. But uh, you're not a secret Disney. They've got a lot of stations around the country, all AMs mostly. I want to I want to end our our chat, Art, by because you know you were talking. We started with you talking about how. 
your listeners feel such a personal connection with you and they share their lives with you every night on the air. And yet, it seems to me, Art, that you're actually, we don't know much about your personal life. So I want to ask you two personal questions that we can always edit out, but I want to ask you these questions. So the first one is um, when you're done on the radio, what are you listening to at home? Uh, Sometimes uh, I, I record the latter part of my show and I listen to that. To make, wow. just, just to get an idea. Of what, Can't get enough of yourself? Well, what I've done when, when I listen to the last part, when I say I record it, yeah. if I record the last hour of my show, I record it like my show's on till midnight. Uh, that show gets recorded at 10 o'clock while I'm on the air so that the phone calls that I take and all are you know, immediate. They're, they have to wait about the same length of time to get on as when I'm here live. So if I run out of gas sometimes, I, I do that. Uh, I don't do it every night, but I can do it. And it's interesting that, that uh, the ratings don't show any difference. In one case, it showed them higher when I wasn't here. <laughs> the shares are up a little, a share. And I thought, well, that's good. Maybe I don't have to deliver the body sure. every night after all. <laughs> But so you, you are a fan, like a true fan of the music you play every night? Or do you go home and can't wait to go, oh, I really need to go listen to some experimental electronic music from 1981? You, uh, I'm like a lot of other uh, people that have been doing it a long time that wear earphones and it's, it's in their ears every night. Yeah. I don't listen to any music, you know, except my own show. And once in a while, I listen to competitors in my car when I'm driving home or something like that. But... Uh, to me, uh, while I'm doing it, I get a lot of it. I listen to it, and I, and I do hear the music. Alan Freed once told me, if you don't listen to the music and, uh, on the show and you're not in the show, they'll know. <laughs> yeah. He said, they'll know if, you're, if, you're, if you don't comment or you're, you know, you're not part of it. So sometimes when I'm talking to listeners, I'll, they'll say, I want to do this song from, for my cousin Gilbert and so-and-so, and I'll write those names down and repeat them back. So, okay, we're going to send this out then to your so-and-so. And they like that. They like hearing their names on the air, and they particularly like hearing me right. say them. Right. I will do that. I make a lot of my way to do that a lot. So the, the last question I want to ask you, um, you know, much of Dub Lab's audience is very health-conscious, it's a very health-conscious audience. And you seem to have discovered the Fountain of Youth, Art LeBeau. Well, I don't know about that. Um, we won't mention your age. Why not? All right. On, it was in the L.A. Times on the front page. But was it? All right, so how old are you? I had a big article in the, in the Times about two years ago, and I said, you have to put my age up there? And she says, well, I'll see, and boom, it so came you're, out. So you're, you're 84-year-old You're DJ. 70. You're 70. Huh? You're 70. No, I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm 86. 86. You look... Sixty-five. Oh, well, that's good. Um, what, what, what's the was, trick? Are there magic shakes, protein powders? What are you eating? Well, I, I did Yoga? Uh, bump into a nutritionist when I was forty-eight, and uh, he put me on the right track uh, on a lot of things like that. I was checking cholesterol and things like that back then. It's incredible. And so you could figure out how many years ago. It was thirty years, I guess, something like that. And he was he was very good. Matter of fact, I've outlived him. He was. Uh, <laughs> I've outlived. I've outlived about six of my doctors. <laughs> There's nothing better than outliving your nutritionist. I got to tell you a story since we're on the subject of health. You might like this one. I don't know, but my friend Bill Gazzari, who used to own Gazzari's on the sure. Strip, 
and he and I used to pal around together. And so when I started, you know, okay, we have to do part two of this interview, and I only want to hear you and Gazari at night stories. But go ahead. Well, that that, might be X rated. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But anyway, this isn't. so I got him kind of, you know, watching his health. And you had to go in and have the doctor check your heart and, you know, cholesterol, try to explain things to him. And he said, oh, okay. So he used to go in. So he goes in to get his heart checked. And the guy's doing an EKG. Bill's on the table. And the doctor is standing over there. And the machine is running. And the doctor collapses and dies of a heart attack. <laughs> it's a true story. And I said, it could only happen to Bill Gazzari. I mean, he's, and I said, what did you do? He said, I called for the nurse. Incredible. I said, did he really die or just have a heart attack? He said, no, he, died. he did not recover. But he felt, uh, I guess, uh, em- empowered there. Because right. <laughs> he outlived his doctor. Well, I guess the no, ultimate. No, no such thing has happened to me. Most of them, are, I, I usually like old school doctors, so they're usually, were older than me. And they all do, lived. Do you exercise? Do you golf? What's the secret? I exercise. I swim and I walk. And you and never stop. You always. Well, I try to keep moving. That's important. Yeah. And I, I'll, I'll give you the three things I, I think you need to do. S-E-E. C. Remember that. Sleep, eat, exercise every day. Have a good sleep. And you, you can't always do that. But that if, if you're the, the perfectly, if you sleep eight hours a, a, a night, you eat. Nutritious three meals, which I don't. I try to, but I don't get it done either with lots of vegetables and the Mideast mm-hmm. diet and all that. And exercise. And that, that one's a hard one to squeeze in all the time, too. Because I don't do it, try to do it at the end of the day. I tried that. And just, uh, you, you, I'm usually tired by then. So I try to do it during the day or in the morning. And the last one we can add is that oldies keep you young. The music, you mean? Yeah. Well, yeah, if you dance to it, you know, it's, it, it can keep you young. And and, uh, and talking to young people all the time helps yeah. a lot, you know, because I, I can still identify with it and tell jokes with the kids and everything. Well, Art, I, I got to say, I, you know, thank you for talking with us. It's been a great honor uh, to speak with you. And not only, I should point out, um, local hero, um, regional hero of, of, of radio and music, but now um, soon to be... Um, inducted into the National Radio Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's exciting for me because, uh, you know, I started listening to the radio and being completely enmeshed in it when I was eight years old. And when my sister uh, sent us a radio, I lived in Utah there. I was born in Salt Lake. I was eight years old. Radio itself was only, that would be in about nine, radio itself was only uh, about ten years old. The whole first radio station right. which came out in 1922 uh, and I was born in 1925 so but when I started listening the radio was about eight and when I got when this radio came to our house in Utah and we were living in a small little house my sister had sent it to us and it was, it's a little black box and I said mom that the box talks <laughs> and, and I said well that's something and I used to just sit and stare into the speaker and my mother would, couldn't tear me away. Day as long as I, every day, and I used to hear all the announcers and how they would talk and how they were different. And the, you know, I always dreamed someday I'd be in the box talking too, and and being in the uh, in, uh, in the radio hall of fame. You know, being inducted there. This 
November is a big thrill for me. I have a star in the Walk of Fame, as you probably know, but the Radio Hall of Fame is something real special for me. And uh, I was up for it, nominated two years ago. We didn't make it, but this year they sent me a letter and said, you're going to be inducted, along with Howard Stern, by the way, and a couple of others. All that matters to us is you. (laughs) So we thank you for taking the time. Uh, It's been incredible to hear your stories, and I can speak on behalf of the entire Dub Lab uh, team and uh, all of the listeners and fans who you're a complete hero uh, to. So we, we really thank you for sharing your your life and your thoughts and your music with us and i'm going to check out dub lab some more dublab.com you better <laughs> thanks art okay bye-bye now in conversation was produced by dub lab a nonprofit radio station broadcasting live from los angeles since 1999 sound editing and theme song by matea bame For more programming, visit dublab.com. And thank you for listening.